Hello, you're listening to Breakfast Bites, and I'm Felicia King. Today's show, I'm going to talk about cyber liability insurance and some real practical components associated with that, what it means to you as a consumer of this service, as well as what the things are that you need to be aware of uh, when you're interacting with your IT services provider. So let's get started on this. I'm going to just give you a little bit of a warning here that this is going to be a tad bit controversial. And uh, so <laughs> just just <clears throat> be prepared for that. Okay, we're going to be as uh, tactful as possible here, but I am giving you a bit of a controversy warning here. So there have been a number of posts I have read on forums that were posted by uh, some individuals who claim to be very experienced ransomware remediation experts. And as such, they have uh, circumstances to be involved in arbitration hearings between insurance companies and uh, MSPs. MSPs are managed services providers or otherwise known as IT service providers. You know, and of course the customer of the IT service provider is involved as well. And the problem that I find with a number of these posts on forums is not that they're hearsay. I mean, of course we know they're hearsay, but it's that much of the detailed information is missing, so it becomes extremely difficult to take away any sort of a tangible, actionable, how can we avoid this situation learning from these hearsay things. And unfortunately, uh, sometimes when I ask for more details because I just find the data to not be actionable, that's considered to be, I don't know, fighting against the arguments of the veracity of what was articulated, and that's not how I see it at all. So the approach that I've taken with this is said, you know, let look, let, let's dig into this in a deep, tangible way so that we can prevent these issues from happening to us, whether us is the... Uh, small to medium business or, or large business who is the consumer of a cyber liability or a cyber security insurance policy. And then what about from the perspective of the IT services companies that provide services to them? Okay, so first let's state the fact that everyone should have some sort of a cyber security liability uh, insurance policy for their business. And I'm not going to get into the realm of what they should have covered and not covered. That is the purview of your discussions with your insurance broker. And my one piece of advice for you on the cybersecurity insurance space, other than just simply having it, is that I do strongly suggest finding an extremely large broker who has the ability to 
provide a significant diversity and depth of insurance products to you when I have worked with a number of insurance brokers in the past that uh, tend to specialize a little too much they did not have adequate resources they didn't have adequate security for the uh, information that they're being provided which is uh, frankly pretty sensitive information because they ask a business who they're going to issue a policy for to say okay we need a copy of your contracts we need to know your financials we need to know I mean they just it's there's a lot of I'm not saying that it's overly or unnecessarily intrusive what I'm saying is that in the necessary conduct of them providing you a service you are required to disclose certain information to them and then the expectation is that they keep it secure and I can tell you from direct experience, having been the IT service provider to a couple of insurance agencies who decided to do co-managed IT because that was cost effective in their viewpoint, they didn't do IT security well whatsoever. Now, fortunately, both of those companies have sold to a larger organization and perhaps that larger organization does IT security better I don't know but one of the things that I'm particularly uncomfortable with inside of the way that a lot of insurance companies or I should say insurance agencies do things is that they have a tendency to provide all agents accessibility into your record and virtually all personnel access into your record and I think there are some real problems with that approach because what if there is a family member uh, or friend of one of your competitors who's able to access that record and I actually had a circumstance like that occur where I confronted an insurance agency and said, you know, I'm extremely concerned about doing business with you because I know who some of your employees are and how they might improperly access data. And they literally just have no mechanism inside of their IT controls to secure that record appropriately from a role-based access control perspective. So, uh, there are some problems, I think, even inside the large companies. Okay, so I'm going to tell you what the circumstance, the, the hearsay story was that was told, and then I'm going to walk you through understanding or translating that into something that you can directly action and turn into something that's tangible. Okay, so here it is. The hearsay story that was stated was that uh, the customer of an IT service provider had their own cybersecurity insurance policy. They got a business email compromise event. There was some damage that occurred as a result of that. My guess is that because the person who was telling this story was the claimed ransomware remediator, that, uh, that it was a pretty significant event that impacted 
this customer of the IT service provider and that it was ransomware related. So generally, if an insurance company is going to be called, then that would suggest that it was a fairly substantial event. Okay, so th these are some of the our suppositions that we think are fairly accurate here. Okay, now the insurer for the customer, so this is the insurance company, they denied the claim. So they're not going to perform any payout on the claim whatsoever. And they're doing that on the basis that the IT service provider was not using an email security service that was known to their security expert. So the security expert of the insurer did not know about this email security service. And the security expert claimed that the business email compromise occurred because they did not who they did not know who the email security service provider was and uh, the distillation of their opinion is that that means because they didn't know who that email security service provider was that the product could not have possibly had security efficacy there was no discussion about configuration it was really around the security product and that that security product did not appear on Gartner and Forrester reports. And the security expert thought that the IT service provider should not have been utilizing that tool, so they claimed that due care was not exercised and therefore the claim was denied. Now, one thing that I find particularly bizarre in this story is that the insurance company is purportedly not assisting their covered party, which is the policyholder, due to supposed negligence of a different company, which is the IT service provider. So, uh, I mean, that, that one is kind of weird to me. That one doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then this whole claim that the security expert doesn't know the product, so therefore it couldn't have any efficacy, uh, that's also got some interesting questions raised around, hmm, so what, do, what criteria is the security expert of the insurance company utilizing in order to ascertain the efficacy of the product and take that a step further, almost everything in the information technology industry could be characterized as ineffective regardless of what manufacturer provides the software or hardware unless it is actually configured properly and maintained properly by the integrator. So this statement that says that a solution can't possibly have any efficacy because the security expert for the insurance company doesn't know that product, uh, that again is bizarre to me. It's, a, it's an interesting arbiter of whether or not something has any efficacy. So 
again, this was the way it was presented. Now, if instead there's going to be a criteria that says, well, no, we actually require, as the insurance company, we require that the implemented system has a testable proof, so an attestation process, that uh, it provides regularized proof of the ongoing efficacy of that solution. Okay, that, that I could buy, right? I think that is a, that's reasonable. That's absolutely reasonable because that's actually what really matters. If we're talking about we have insurance as part of an overall risk mitigation and a risk management strategy, then first and foremost, you need to be managing that risk down by proactively having effective systems in place. So if the insurance company was to say, you know, look, we're, we're not going to provide any coverage here because you didn't do due care and due diligence because you did not test this system on a regular basis and you have no demonstrable, non-tamperable, attestable proof that it works. So let me describe some of those terms I was just talking about, non-tamperable and attestable. So here's what this means. And this is, this is extremely important, right? So pay deep attention to this. If you have a cybersecurity awareness training program for your staff, and you should, and if you have a regularized phishing testing program for your staff, which you should, and by the way, that whole thing would probably cost you about $400 a month for your uh, entire company up to let's say 25 users, and then it'll be like a little bit more expensive uh, if you have more than 25 users. But that's just, you know, some general pricing to think about, uh, which is, as far as I'm concerned, that type of a program, um, it will also end up giving you IT security policies and it'll do a whole bunch of other things, but it's done correctly. This is inside of a learning management system that has automation that delivers these phishing testing, it delivers the cybersecurity awareness training to your staff, and it captures this detail as to who has done what training and did they pass the quizzes at the end, and you know, so have these phishing tests gone out, who clicked on them, uh, who deleted them, and you know, really capturing all of these statistics and then putting this in the hands of not only IT but also the HR manager and then delivering these things into a report into a compliance platform. You know, and this is actually some of the things that we do for clients. So it's it's totally possible and it's actually not that bad to do. It's absolutely something that's attainable and it's not it's not financial unobtainium in the uh, small to medium business space. So that, that, what I just described is a system that gives you a testable, non-tamperable, automated proof systems that 
with the level of automation whereby each month you can have a report that automatically gets published into the compliance platform that you know you the owners of the business could review the insurance company could review the who the lawyers could review whoever needs to review it the compliance platform should have a mechanism whereby it's able to ingest these reports it tells people uh, when a new report has not been received and it should have been received right so there's some sort of a, a positive validation process and that it also has automatic retention handling on it so if you specify we need to keep these reports for the uh, last year your cost for a solution like this if it doesn't have that kind of automation in it you know obviously expecting someone to manually manage that stuff is just it's preposterous it's a it doesn't meet the compliance requirements and it's a stupid use of somebody's manual human labor so this whole aspect of the non-tamperable means that an admin or that you know the HR manager or whoever cannot be going in there and manually manipulating the results and this is one of the reasons why when you try to do this stuff on your own internally inside of an HR department and you know you've got these policies in place but no real testing validation schedule follow-up automation system no reporting with automated delivery of these reports into a compliance platform I mean the requirement from a compliance perspective that no human can alter or tamper with the results of that report that is delivered into the compliance platform that is a compliance requirement well, you can't do that if you're using manual processes and I think ma using manual processes in the world where we now actually have cost-effective ways for small to medium business to have these things it's just not a good use of some manual human labor I mean you're not really saving any money with that approach as far as I'm concerned so that's what I mean by non-tamperable attestable evidence so if the insurer said you know you're going to demonstrate to us due care and due diligence if you can demonstrate that you had systems in place to reduce your risk of business email compromise such as cybersecurity awareness training for staff and you can prove that the staff took the training on a regular basis and that you can also prove that you were testing the staff for business email compromise okay and you might need reports from your email system that uh, talk about the number of phishing emails that were stopped by the email filtering service you know I mean any number of things like that you might need so all of this stuff can be automated so I think that at least would be an intellectually honest argument so I had a lot of issues with this particular story that was being portrayed about what actually happened and and upon the challenge I found some more details here so I'm going to read it to you here um, with some you know distillation here so 
it wasn't just about the email security service. It was the argument that the IT service provider was providing uh, an EDR EPP themselves. Okay, so what is EDR? Endpoint detection and response. And that their dashboard had hundreds of whitelists in it. They were also providing mail email security and the product had missed what made the data exfiltration and then therefore the ransomware extortion possible. So the security expert for the insurance provider claimed that the product had zero market pres presence and vetting outside of that company's own marketing material and outside of the MSP channel. And so the insurer's security representative called the product into question and said there was zero independent testing available for that product anywhere. So again, my point is, who cares? That doesn't matter. What matters is, was the configuration for that customer over a demonstrable period of time actually testing out as proven effective? Because that's actually what matters. I mean, like, give you a great example of this. Let's say uh, you succumb to all of the marketing hype and you decide you're going to go buy Sentinel-1, but you don't really understand who's your counterparty in that. You know, maybe you start, I mean, you know, I mean, that whole thing is fraught with all kinds of challenges. <clears throat> because this entire argument that says, I'm just going to go get this outsourced sock and that therefore now I'm going to be super wonderful. If you go and subscribe to some sort of popular, supposedly vetted outsourced SOC, that does not actually mean that the configuration that they're utilizing in your environment is tested and proven as working over a consistent period of time. So <laughs> I took some of this information and I decided to send a list of questions to a cybersecurity insurance provider and I am waiting for their answers but I asked questions such as this. So in the mind of the security expert for the insurer what actually qualifies as industry vetting for a product? You know, is it that the thing appears in Gartner reports or Forrester reports because I can tell you that those things are pay to play schemes. You have to actually pay as a manufacturer to get your product vetted and reviewed by them and their particular methods for vetting and reviewing products are not consistent with exactly how that product would be utilized in any particular customer's environment. So one of the big hubbubs lately was about the, the MITRE ATT&CK framework and the claim was that any EDR EPP solution that did not participate in that testing round must be utter garbage. Well, no, wrong. That's not the case at all. So when you when you look at an example, I know of a company who did not participate in that 
MITRE tech framework EDR EPP testing. And it wasn't because their product can't do it. It's because that they were in the middle of a project in order to code all of their existing threat hunting rules to the code rules inside the MITRE ATT&CK framework. So how can you participate in something at the time when you haven't completed the coding of your threat hunting rules to the MITRE ATT&CK framework policy set? Okay. Uh, now, the same company has been in business for over 20 years, and they service extremely large enterprise and have a very, very mature product that's highly effective. So does that make it junk because it didn't participate in the Gartner assessment on the MITRE ATT&CK framework for an EDR EPP? Well, no. So maybe what would be much more meaningful is something that was uh, actually a system that would generate a report from that specific EDR EPP in that specific customer's environment on a weekly basis or a monthly basis and report that into the compliance platform. So when the question comes up, is this effective? Demonstrate that it's effective. That product better be generating the reports to demonstrate it's turned on on the machines, the machines are up to date, uh, how many malware detections do we have, what's been blocked, what alerts were there. You know, there's any number of criteria that you could be using there. You could do uh, a configuration report, as an example, that would say, okay, so what do you have exceptions for? Let's demonstrate those. Put that in an attestation report. So that's the stuff that I find is relevant because you could go buy super fancy pants software and configure it in a horribly incorrect manner and it won't be effective. I mean, I've been saying for years that you can go get the best network layer security appliance there is on the market but if you don't know how to program it effectively, if you don't understand network layer security architecture strategies and then have systems in place to monitor that and maintain it on literally a daily basis, I'm not kidding you, then it isn't going to be an effective solution. And I'm very serious about a daily basis because even just earlier this week, there was the big brouhaha over the uh, spooler print nightmare vulnerability. And there were, you know, one of the responses to that was to literally go and do some additional network layer hardening if it wasn't already in place. So how do you do that in the context where you don't have the staff to effectuate that, uh, you know, or you don't have contacts with an IT service provider who manages that solution for you, okay? So it wasn't that, oh, you bought this super wonderful device and then it somehow magically maintains itself because that's never going to happen. 
No, it's a matter of can we prove on a regular, ongoing basis and auto-publish into a compliance platform that your company was engaging in due care and due diligence through a non-tamperable attestation process. Attestation meaning like every month we're going to get a report on this thing. It could be every week we get a report on this thing. And there's auto retention for those reports and so forth. So um, I want to leave you with one little tickler for another related topic, which is, so in the context that there is actually this incident that occurs that you feel you need to get your insurer involved, have you contacted your insurer and asked them, do they require you to put that environment in stasis for forensic investigation? And if they do, what's the procedure for that? And then how soon will their incident response team arrive on site at your facility to do investigation? How long will the investigation take? And when can you actually start your recovery process? What do you do in the meantime? Logistically, this might actually mean you are out of business for two to four weeks. And if that is something that makes you uncomfortable, then I suggest that you start engaging with an IT service provider that can help you navigate these, these challenges. And that's what we're here for. So this is Felicia King from Quality Plus Consulting. I hope you found this informative. Have a lovely day.